The following message is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe can be found at axechurchleander.com. This is Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the, angel, or all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you did not give me, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did nothing to help you, or did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Beautiful uh, acts. Uh, it's awesome to be with you guys. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, we are now going to kind of go into our shared life message. Uh, this is, again, that 40-day campaign, which comes from Philippians 4.8, where Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is, and then he counts through these eight different things, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is admirable, whatever is pure or lovely, excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And we as a church have said, not only do we want to think about such things, but we want to share such things with our neighbors. And every week we're taking one or two of those items and diving deeper into what it looks like. Last week we talked about what is true and what is noble, and today we're going to talk about what is just. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I am a little bit worried about this message. Not that it's not biblical, not that I haven't spent time working on it, but this topic of justice is one right now that has become very partisan. Whether you're on the left or you're on the right, we're trying to use it as a tool, as a club to beat down the other side. And you have Jesus sitting there in the middle saying, my justice, biblical justice, is not partisan. It is not left. It is not right. It is not Republican. It is not Democrat. In fact, it is something deeper and more beautiful than all of that. 
And right now, we are in this weird season of politics where even talking about it seems scary, and yet what we have is a God who promises, no, when you bring my word in its full truth, in its full color, in its full beauty, he actually starts to do something different. He provides us an off-ramp to the insanity and an on-ramp to what God is doing. So today we're going to lean into the topic of biblical justice in all of its wonkiness in 2020, and yet I believe God's going to do something powerful through it. But I want to start off with prayer. I want to start off realizing that this might get all of us uncomfortable, including myself, and yet that's okay. Because we have a God who says, if you follow me in this, I'm going to do something beautiful. I'm going to do something powerful. He's going to gift us and gift the world with something new. I invite you guys to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are a God who uh, constantly is shaping our minds to be closer to you. That is constantly shaping our hearts and our activities, not just as individuals, but as a Christian community to have an impact in our greater world. Lord God, as we talk about justice today, Lord, as we talk about what you're trying to do in and through us as your church, I pray you give us your words, your wisdom, your insight. Lord, that you convict us and challenge us where we need to be challenged and you encourage us and send us out emboldened where we need to be sent out. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, so we are going to get into the gospel reading today that Brittany read about the sheep and the goats, but I want to pause real quick before we start, because the parable of the sheep and the goats can seem a little weird for Christians at first glance, right? So the story goes, Jesus says, at the end of times, God is going to separate everybody into two camps, the righteous and the wicked, And he says, for the righteous, come to the place that I've prepared for you. Well done, my good and faithful servant, writes this beautiful imagery of the righteous will come to God. And they said, how were we righteous? And he says, oh, you took care of the poor and the needy. And they respond like, we didn't didn't see you in that. And he goes, oh no, whenever you did that for others, you did that for me. And then he turns to the wicked and he says, but y'all didn't do that. Y'all didn't take care of me when I was poor or when I was in prison or when I was sick or when I was weak. And they're like, we never saw you, God, in those situations. And he responds, I tell you truly, when you did not do it for them, you didn't do it for me. And if that was all we had in scripture, it would look like we're supposed to work our way into heaven. That the more we care for those who are weak, the more we care for those who are poor or in distress, the closer we get to heaven. But that is not what the gospel in all of its entirety teaches. No, instead, there are some really clear verses of how we are received into heaven. One of them comes from Ephesians 2, where Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says this, He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Right? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is explicitly clear. We do not work our way to heaven. We do not work our way to God. In fact, the entire Gospels is Jesus coming down and saying, no, 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 it's not about a stairway up. He goes, I will come down. I will live among you. I will give you grace, divine favor in all of its beauty, in all of its strength. We do not work our way into heaven. We do not work our way into a relationship with Jesus. However, our relationship with Jesus is not an a la carte menu where we get to pick and choose what parts of the gospel we want to participate in. 
We don't get to say, you know what, yeah, forgiveness of sins, absolutely. Prayers for my family, absolutely. Oh, that retirement plan in heaven, I will take that a hundred times out of a hundred. But some of the other stuff, Jesus, like bless those who persecute you, I'm not sure I want that part of the menu. Turn the other cheek. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You know what, Jesus, maybe I don't want those aspects of following you. And what is really clear in Scripture is we don't get to choose what parts of the gospel we want to participate in. Put another way, we don't get the benefits of Jesus without following Jesus. And that is where the parable of the sheep and the goats start to make a lot more sense, right? This is not about us working our way into heaven. This is about us living our life with Jesus, participating in the gospel in all of its fullness, including those good works that God has prepared in advance for his church, for his children to be a part of. All right, so with that as the preface, let's get into this parable of the sheep and the goats. Then, now this is Jesus telling the story, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? Where did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The righteous, the sheep in this story, didn't even recognize that they were serving God when they were serving what the church would typically call the least of these, the sick, the foreigner, those in prison, those without resources to provide for themselves. That was the definition of righteous. Now, that r- word righteous in the Greek is, uh, de- I'm gonna, I always screw up how I pronounce this, de chaos, uh, which combines two Old Testament words. Sedekah, which we would normally translate in the Old Testament as the righteous, uh, which means how we live our lives for others. And mishpat, which is justice, which is biblical outcomes for others. You see, in the Greek, that first word can mean both things. And so half the time, if you are reading your New Testament and you see the word righteous, that's dekachias. Uh, and if you see the word justice, it's the same word. Because in Greek, to be righteous meant to be about justice. In Hebrew, they literally just had two words of the same coin, sedekah and mishpat. We're going to go through what biblical justice looks like, what biblical righteousness looks like. And there was a resource that just came out a week ago from a guy named Tim Keller. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a pastor in New York City, and he is one of the deepest biblical theologians we have in modern time. And he was looking at all that was going on in 2020 and all the partisanship and how Christians were dividing into camps. And he says, you know what, I want to do a deep dive, a deep exploration of what biblical righteousness and biblical justice look like. And so we're going to be pulling from that today, but this comes directly from Scripture. And he has about 100 different footnotes of either scriptural footnotes or theological footnotes that walk through, walking through what 
he's getting at in biblical justice. But he starts off by talking about what righteousness is in the Old Testament and what justice is in the Old Testament. In the Bible, biblical righteousness refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts themselves in all relationships, in family, in society, with fairness, generosity, and equity. The righteous, Sedekah, are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. You see this all over the Old Testament. Those who are declared righteous are not those who go to temple every Sunday. It's not those who give the most in offerings. The righteous in the Old Testament and the New Testament specifically and consistently is defined by those who will disadvantage themselves for their community. And conversely, the wicked are those who say, no, 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 I will disadvantage the community to advantage myself. And we see this clearly in Jesus, right? Jesus looks down at a broken world, and he could have said, you know what, I am washing my hands clean of it. All of you have screwed up. All of you make mistakes. You're all playing the same games. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But instead, what does he do? The righteous one of God comes down and disadvantages himself, dies on a cross, puts on human flesh, and says, I love you this much, to advantage the community, to advantage the world. See, the first part of biblical justice is understanding what God is trying to get at in righteousness. It's this deep, deep belief that we are called to something beyond ourselves. Sin makes it all about us. And as long as we are living in sin, we will always find some way to disadvantage everyone else for our own gain. And yet what we see in Jesus is that that is not his game. Again, this is from the gospel of Jesus. Jesus called them, his disciples, together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their officials exercise authority over them. It's all about power, Jesus says. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your servant, just as the Son of Man, the righteous one, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is all over the Gospels. This is all over Jesus talking to his disciples about what it meant to follow him. And he goes, you know how the world, the world rules itself. You know how Facebook operates. You know how political campaigns or CEOs or everything. You know they're all about power. He goes, but not so with you. Instead, you must become a servant of all because the Son of Man, the Messiah, came to disadvantage himself, to advantage everyone else. See, the first part about biblical justice is that those who claim, those who are in relationship with God, have a responsibility to act in a righteous way. But it doesn't just stop there. Sometimes we as Christians can say what God cares about is the individual, what we do individually. And yes, he does, but he cares about that in the larger system of what God is trying to do throughout the entire world. To see something larger than just an individual outcome. 
but to see outcomes of beauty, outcomes of redemption, outcomes of the kingdom of God. We say it in our prayer every week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, here, as it is in heaven. It's built into our language. God, we want you doing things not just as us individually, but in our world. Again, pulling from Keller, he says this, we do justice, Miss Pot, when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and the vulnerable. These kinds of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple and fair, honest dealings with people in our daily life to regular, radically generous giving of our time and our resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, or oppression. Biblical outcomes. God's trying to get us back into Genesis 1 and 2 where all are provided for, where all are in relationship for. And so often when we think about justice, we just think about the retributive kind. You stole, you hurt someone else, and so justice means that right being wrong. That's why we have things like police and judges and juries and prosecutors. That's one of the guardrails God has put up in society to protect us from what we all have, this sinful condition. We're left to our own devices. All of us will disadvantage our community to advantage ourselves, right? And so God literally ordains these different organizations to put up guardrails in the world. And so we as Christians, we pray for them and we love them and we support them and keep up on those daily challenges because guess what, guys? We're going to be supporting the police pretty quick, saying thank you for your service. Thank you for being a part of what biblical justice is. But that is not the only type of justice in the Bible. No, Beyond just retributive justice, there is restorative justice where we say as Christians, God sees all of us as his children. We are all built into his image and he is trying to create biblical kingdom outcomes for every race, for every economic class, for every country. God is about biblical, holistic justice and outcomes. It's not just about the individual. It's about what God is doing in the world through his church, through his righteous agents of goodwill and love. And again, you see this in the New Testament. James, writing to the new church, says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Taking care of the widows and the orphans, taking care of the most vulnerable, those who have the most opportunity to be exploited by a society. James, the prophets, Jesus himself starts off his ministry by calling out to the prophets and says, I have come to break the trains of the oppressed, of those who are enslaved. For the poor, he says, Jesus starts off his ministry declaring this season of biblical justice as individuals together come and seek and work for our community as children of God.
So what does this look like? We're going to get into specifics now, and this is where the, the landmines start to appear, both emotional, uh, spiritual, everything else, because uh, we're going to get into specifics of what biblical justice looks like. And I am going to, hopefully, through Scripture, disarm some of the partisanship that's going on uh, about these topics. But before we get there, one last quote from Keller. He says this, Biblical justice is significant, life-changing advocacy for the poor. Psalm 41 says, Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and to the poor. You see, the Hebrew word here, translated consideration, means you are to pay close attention to the weak and the poor, seeking, and this is the big part, to understand the causes of their condition and to spend significant time and energy to changing their life situation. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. What Keller is getting at here is, again, the definition between the righteous and the wicked. It's not just about how I individually operate on a moment-to-moment basis. It's seeking to understand what's actually going on in our society. How did we get to these problems in the first place? And then how do we start to, as Christians, lean in, use our different resources to help change the dynamic? So, Told you, we're going to talk about some fun stuff. We're going to talk about some issues that certainly within the church in 2020 have come up. We're going to look at two, abortion and racial inequities. A couple quick stats uh, on abortion. So in 2017, there were over 850,000 abortions in America. Scripture is clear that God starts to create us. He knits us together in the womb. We have a God who has uniquely designed each human from conception in his image. That is scriptural, that is true, that is beautiful, right? And we have an issue with abortion in America right now. All right, let's go on to the next one. In 2017, black students accounted for 18% of pre-K enrollment, but made up almost 50% of multiple school suspensions. Right? 20% of the population, and yet 50% are being suspended from school. There is a problem there. There is something wrong there. There is something wrong in abortion. Right? The question is, how do we address it? What does it look like? How do we lean in? And how do we start to turn down the partisan voices in our head so we can turn up the biblical voice of how we look at justice. Well, again, one last time, I just want to lean into this article because it just dives so deeply into what Scripture is trying to get at. The call to advocacy assumes the fact that our fallen world is highly uneven in the distribution of opportunities and resources. The poor are shunned by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. To be born into a privileged family is to automatically have friends, connections to people with power, immense social capital that paves the way in life. But to be poor, you don't have that capital. Children in poor neighborhoods usually grow up with inferior schooling in an environment that is extremely detrimental to learning. 
Conservatives may argue this is the parents' fault, while progressives will point to a failure of social policy. But no one believes that it's the child's fault. They are born into a world without friends who will open the doors for them. Does understanding how we got there matter? Yes. But from a biblical sense, how we got here does not dictate whether or not we care, whether or not we advocate for, whether or not we become friends to the poor and the marginalized, whether or not we use our resources to say, as kingdom people, as righteous people who will disadvantage ourselves, even disadvantage our community for another community that we can see biblical outcomes happen. See, right now the world is so loud, yelling at us, trying to convince us that one side or the other is going to fix everything. Guys, that is not scriptural. I don't care who you vote for in 2020. The problems that we see today are not going to magically go away. We have deeper issues. We have a sin issue. And if we as Christians want to pursue biblical justice, it means we have to get off that train. Right? We are allowed to have policies that we support. God is going to lead you this year and to say, you know, this is the best way forward on a specific policy, a specific way forward to address this issue. God bless that. But there is no room for partisanship. Because partisanship, by definition, means you are giving your allegiance to a party or a person. And as Christians, we do not give our allegiance to anyone other than Jesus. That's part of what it looks like to be Christians. It's part of what it looks like to be people of faith. It's why when his followers were walking through and the Roman uh, Jewish uh, rabbis were coming and they were asking, should you pay taxes? Jesus' response was, yeah. Look at the coin. It's got Caesar's name on it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And that is the kingdom that we owe our allegiance to. And guys, the cool thing about this is that once we're able to turn down the voices, we come up with some really cool ways to see biblical outcomes happen in our community. We've got one in our church that actually helps address both of those two issues that I brought up. It's called Acts of Love, right? That is literally our way of saying we are a pro-life church. Any mom in high school that gets pregnant, we want to support you. We want to care for you. We want to disadvantage ourselves. We want to use our resources to provide something for you that you and this child, and so many of our students are children of color, that they can be supported and loved and know they're not alone and we can champion them. One of my favorite moments of 2020 this year is we did the um, graduation parade. It was awesome to go to all these different students, families of our church, but we also went to one of the Acts of Love moms and we got to see her and we got to celebrate her and her baby and say, we are for you and we love you and we are with you because we are Team Jesus and Team Jesus is full of righteous people 
mind you, broken. We're still from the island of misfit toys. We'll get to that in a second. But we want to be righteous so we can see biblical justice happen. But to do that, we have to tune down the voices of the world and get better in sync with the voices of who our God is and what our God is doing. One of the ways we do that is through something called confession and absolution, where we come before our God and we admit, you know what? I am listening to those voices too much. I can tell you, me as an individual, I listen to those voices too much. I need to repent of looking at worldly justice and worldly solutions to a sin problem and start getting back in touch with who our God is and what biblical justice looks like. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, and he talks about what worldly sorrow brings as opposed to godly sorrow. He says this, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings only death. Right? He says, this godly sorrow will lead you to turn. Repentance literally means to turn from one thing, all the voices of the world, and turning to God to hear, to see, and to participate in that. And then, and this is where I just get shivers, right? He says, what this leads to, see what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. We get to see justice done when we come before our God and we admit, Father, we are still broken. We are still working this thing out. We are still from the island of misfit toys. And it's so easy to get drowned out and bought into what the world is trying to sell us, what they are trying to get us to, allege to put our allegiance in, whether it's politics, whether it's money, whether it's our family, whatever it is. And Jesus is up there saying, guys, I have a better way. I have a righteous way that's going to produce outcomes for the world that are beautiful and powerful. And I want you to participate. Church, I invite you now to pray with me as we come in confession that we still have work to do. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. You are a God who was the righteous one. You disadvantaged yourself for a community that was broken and that specialized in hurting each other, in demonizing the other, others who are made in your image, others who you love. Lord God, and often as Christians, even as we're trying to follow you, we get swept up in all the brokenness of the world and, and we hate like the world hates. We condemn like the world condemns. We ridicule like the world ridicules. And yet, Father Lord, you are teaching us and you are showing us a different path. And Father Lord, we are bold to ask forgiveness because your word says it is by grace, your divine favor that we have been saved. It's not of our own works, Lord. And so we are bold to receive forgiveness, but then we are bold to get back to that good work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Father Lord, we pray that in 2020, through both the Share Life campaign and just everything that we're trying to do together, that we could be righteous, that we could see where you are calling us, where you have provided opportunity for us to be a part of biblical outcomes, both locally, regionally, nationally, and beyond. Lord God, we're excited to see what you're going to do this year. Say this all in your son's precious name.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.